Breaking the Glass, Episode 12. So I was a deployed wing commander uh, in uh, Oman, Thumbraid, Oman. Yeah. I did not know until probably a year, probably two years later, that at the time the decision was being talked about, said, hey, we're going to think about sending Hopper over here to be the deployed wing commander at Thumbraid. And somebody stood up and said, well, wait a second. What are our Omani allies going to think? Uh, are they second-class citizens because we're sending an African-American wing commander over to Whoa. them? Somebody stood up in that room and said, have you ever met an Omani? Well, you know what? If you put them side by side, most of them look pretty much like Colonel Hopper does. <laughs> so, uh, so they're not going to have any, any problems with that. Wow. Well, the person that stood up in that room was a guy named Steve Stevens, hmm. uh, who is passed. And so things intertwined. Steve Stevens stood up, said that. I never knew it. Got me to Oman and this chance Wait, to... he, to he stood up. he stood up for you. Not He wasn't the one who said the negative comment. He said the positive comment. He okay. said the positive comment. He's the okay. one that stood up and said, look, most of the Omanis look just like Hopper. What are you talking about? Got it. But again, another one of those things that I think points out a couple of things. The importance of standing up and the importance of having somebody in the room. Yeah. So having somebody that that understands, empathizes in the most base terms that looks like you. Right. Oh, so he did. He he was he was black himself. Absolutely. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Welcome to episode 12. I want to thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on iTunes. Your ratings and reviews help me move up the rankings. If you want to leave a review, just search iTunes or in Google for TQ Breaking the Glass, and it should be the first link that comes up and you'll see my podcast. Find me there and leave a rating and review. My guest today is retired Lieutenant General John D. Hopper, Jr., a retired three-star general. General Hopper was the Commandant of Cadets, which means he's like the Dean of Students or in charge of all the cadet training at the Air Force Academy when I showed up as a freshman. So you got to understand, I show up on campus, the number one senior most officer in charge of all of our training in our lives when we show up is this strong, sharp, professional-looking black man. And, and I was just inspired by it, as were many of my classmates of color. And whenever I was putting together this show, I knew I had to reach out to him to be on the show, but I was still so nervous because I still am transported back almost 20 years to where he's this larger-than-life figure from my past. Uh, when you hear the interview initially, I may even be stuttering a little bit early on because I'm so nervous and so excited to interview him. And at the same time, what you're going to hear is listening to him, that General Hopper is such a nice and genuine man. He started from very humble beginnings with the military father and then went to the Air Force Academy for college. He had a very distinguished Air Force career, flying over 4,000 hours and 11 different aircraft with numerous distinguished graduate graduations from a number of military trainings, as well as a large number of command and chief and high responsibility positions. I'm going to keep this intro short because our interview is long, even though the time just flies by like you wouldn't believe. But I do want to note this. General Hopper 
was in the South in middle school when the Brown versus Board of Education decision came down. He was also growing up in that time part of the Freedom Rides and the sit-ins that were part of the Civil Rights Movement. He was a cadet at the Air Force Academy when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And he was there whenever the men, as you heard in the intro, who raised their fists during the Olympics, did what they did. At the Academy, he was part of the group who started the Way of Life Committee, which is like the Black Student Union for the Air Force Academy. So he didn't shy away from these issues of race and people of color, but he also didn't make them a central focus. His actual central focus was being the best at whatever it was that he was doing at the time. And the evidence is clear that that was a successful plan because it got him to three stars as a lieutenant general in the Air Force. Now, after retiring, he's the CEO of the Air Force Aid Society. And in our interview, you'll hear how it helps out members of the Air Force and their family. So without any further ado, please enjoy my interview with retired Lieutenant General John D. Hopper, Jr. My guest today is very special because I've looked up to this man from afar since I was in college at the Air Force Academy. Um, he was our commandant or the dean of students at the academy, which is uh, what his job was there as a one-star general. And he retired from the Air Force as a three-star as the vice commander of Air Education and Training Command. Basically, he was very key and responsible for training and education for the entire Air Force. Please welcome to the interview, retired Lieutenant General John D. Hopper. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on, sir. And um, I'm really excited, like I said, to have you on the show today. Um, hopefully, I don't do too much stuttering. I'm uh, really excited. I still feel like almost being transported back to being a cadet and having to remember your middle initial and all that stuff uh, as as a basic cadet's. Um, but I'm yeah, excited to talk to you today. Let's not go back there. <laughs> so what we'd like to start off with is just a light around background. If you could just give me a, a little bit of a, a history of what it was like for you growing up and, and how things were for you uh, as a youth. Sure, you bet. I um, was born in Clarksville, Tennessee. And um, so that was 70 years ago. Actually, it'll be 71 years ago tomorrow. So my happy birthday. Well, thank you very much. So my ex my experience there is uh, probably a little bit unusual for those that might be tuning in because I was born at my grandmother's house. Uh, so no hospital because in Clarksville, Tennessee at the time, there was no uh, black hospital, no African-American hospital. So I was born at my grandmother's house, attended by the only African-American doctor in town, uh, Dr. Coleman. Uh, whose uh, daughter and I were temporary, so we went to school together for a good portion of our lives. But uh, I grew up and spent most of my time in and around Clarksville, which is, um, as I said, small, uh, more urban than than uh, rural. But uh, at that particular point in time, um, urban is is uh, a little bit of a stretch. Population of perhaps twenty thousand or thereabouts. My my background was a little bit unique in that my dad was in the Army. Uh, he joined when he was 18 years old, just about the time I was born. Wow. And uh, was a career NCO in the Army. Uh, but unlike uh, the way I treated my family uh, throughout my military career, we did not move uh, as much with him as uh, as, for example, my kids did. So uh, when I say I spent a lot of time in Clarksville, then, uh, yeah, there are very few interruptions. My uh, 
family, uh, my mother's family is relocated from East Tennessee when the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, flooded uh, to control flooding uh, the area that they lived in. And my dad's family was actually from Southern Kentucky because Clarksville sits right on the border of uh, Tennessee and Kentucky in the, the North central portion of the state. So Clarksville is really my home. Uh, I, I have relatives, uh, a few relatives still there. Uh, Southern Kentucky is uh, part of my heritage as well. So growing up in Clarksville, a uh, very small, um, uh, African-American community there, very tight-knit, very supportive, uh, supportive in, in the positive sense. And for a child growing up, uh, supportive in the disciplinary sense as well, because if something didn't go too well at school or at church or wherever, generally the news got home before you did. So I know about that one. Yeah, sure. You could get a spanking at school and then look forward to another one uh, by the time you got home. That's what my dad would tell me. They had a piece of paper at my elementary school. You had to sign every year in Texas for if they they could spank your child or not. And my dad oh, would yeah. sign it and write like an extra note that said, just call me. I want to come witness it mm. so I can do the same thing when I get back home. <laughs> we, I don't think we even had a piece of paper there. And uh, it was always the PE teacher that did the spanking, though, so to have somebody that had a little uh, a little strength going on the whole thing. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, to say that to say that the the community was was uh, small and uh, not a lot of interaction in and out. My first grade teacher was my dad's first grade teacher. Oh wow! Uh, so it was uh, it was uh, a lot of uh, folks knew who you were and what you were supposed to be doing. So it was I always like to fun. ask: Was it like uh, were you middle class, high, upper <laughs> class, no class? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, probably uh, in in relative terms within that particular African American community, probably lower middle class to middle class. Okay. Um, it, difficult, really, for me to judge that. Um, I don't remember wanting for a lot of things. Uh, on the other hand, I remember the periodic uh, things that happened that that signal that you didn't do things on a whim. So, for example, at Easter, I knew I was probably going to get a new blue serge suit and some new shoes. Nice. And those had to last until the next Easter, even if you outgrew them. Right. They had to last. Uh, Christmas uh, was um, uh, things like fresh fruit were uh, valued at uh, Christmas time because my grandfather would buy apples and oranges, a, a bushel of each and put them on their back porch, uh, which was unheated. Uh, so the fruit would last, uh, stay cool and uh, crisp. Uh, so I, I remember that as a, as a pretty good thing. Wow. Uh, so all the schools growing up there were segregated, even though, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Brown versus Board of Education occurred in 1954. Uh, the South did not necessarily follow uh, the guidance uh, that the Supreme Court delivered with with the Brown decision. Right. So the first time I went to an integrated school was when we went to Germany and when I was in fourth grade um, and uh, stayed there for three years. So part of fourth grade and into part of seventh grade uh, was that was my first experience. 
I remember it as somewhat eye-opening and uh, a little bit puzzling because I frankly had never considered those things before as a, as a 10, 12, 13-year-old. Sure. Uh, so I, I sort of marked that particular point in time as the place that uh, I started to think about some things. So that experience was kind of eye-opening, but the real eye-opening experience uh, following that was when we got back to the back to the states, and frankly, back to Clarksville, Tennessee. My brother, uh, who was uh, six years uh, younger than I, our our habit when we were in Germany uh, was that on Saturdays I would go bag groceries at the commissary for tips. And then I would take my tips, come get my brother, and we would go to the Saturday matinee and then stop by the little snack bar and get a hamburger, which my recollection says cost 15 cents. Uh, that was that was our thing. So uh, when we got uh, back to the States, back to Clarksville, um, that first uh, Saturday that he and I were going to do that, uh, we went and got on the bus and I walked to the back of the bus and my brother's hand slipped out of mine and he plopped down in the front. And so I went back to get him and I said, come on, we have to, we need to go back here. And he said, no, I want to sit right here. I said, no, you can't do that. We have to go back here. He said, no, I want to sit here. I said, you can't do that. We have to go back here to the back of the bus. And right. he said, why? And so at, at 13 was the first time I realized that I could not answer his question as to why. Wow. Uh, he had to do that, so it was my baby brother that that sort of added the the uh, the real uh, pinch that said, "Hey, you need to recognize uh, the world that's around you." And, and what did that what, spark inside of you? Yeah, because that's What's, like, I mean, one of the things that was this overwhelming when I read through your biography is like you are sort of a living history of dynamic events with regard to race in the United in the history of the United States. So. Um, you were talking about you. You were there during Brown v. Board, like you said, and affected by it. And and this experience obviously was monumental. So, what kind of shift did that cause in you, or what kind of thought process did it drive? Well, I, I think uh, I, I joined uh, the rest of, uh, of young African Americans my age in understanding that um, it, it didn't really matter in some places what the Supreme Court said. That uh, that some, uh, lots of things had that needed to change had not changed, and frankly would not change unless would not change unless there was some push to make them change. So uh, that getting to my my sophomore junior year in high school, things start to accelerate. Uh, if you now we're talking about sixty one, sixty two, sixty three. Right. Uh, if you look at what was happening around the U.S. and across the South with sit-ins and uh, Freedom Riders and wow. uh, Clarksville was not immune from that. And so we sat in and we protested. And uh, there were two two faces to that. Uh, the one face was was mine and the other youngsters around that thought we were doing something important. And the other face was the face of my grandparents and mm. somewhat the face of my parents uh, who were uh, scared to death uh, that something would happen to us. Because, you, they were because you were protesting? Well. They were afraid of that? I'm sorry? 
they were scared because of your protest efforts that something would happen to you? Right. Exactly. So um, that uh, that for for me personally uh, probably precipitated a couple of things that 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 I was not happy with at the time. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. You said they remembered well something. What what did they remember well? Oh, I'm sorry. They remembered well the 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 violence the the that could be perpetrated on on uh, African Americans hmm. uh, by uh, elements in the Deep South that that resisted and resented uh, any effort toward integration. So wow. they were not that far removed from people uh, being beaten up, uh, being disappeared, and uh, perhaps things even worse. Wow. So I, in hindsight, I can understand, even though I, I felt uh, invulnerable and fearless, that they had some concern. And it's not like I was absolutely in the forefront. I mean, I was just one of the crowd. Uh, but... Uh, it did not alleviate their concerns. And so in hindsight, a couple of things happened there that, that really set the course of the rest of my life. One of those was, uh, that sort of put me on the outs with my, with my, uh, particularly with my, uh, my, my mom and dad was uh, at that time, uh, you could, you could actually get an, an academic scholarship. Perhaps they still have this where you, uh, didn't have to complete your senior year. Uh, at Fisk University in, in Nashville, and could go uh, and get go ahead and start college. Um, and uh, I, I was on the verge of accepting one of those uh, when uh, my mom and dad—I think more my dad than my mom—said, "Hey, guess what, buddy? That's not for you. You're wow. you're not gonna you're not gonna do that." And uh, to this day, um, God rest their souls, they both passed away. I'd never had the nerve to say, why did you guys do that? Because I was really excited about that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't have a good answer for that, but I think part of it was tied up uh, in, in what was happening with, with uh, protest and the like in the South. And at that time, of course, Nashville and Tennessee state and Fisk university were at the heart uh, of those efforts in Tennessee. Hmm. So not only did that happen, but then my dad said, guess what, guess what else? Uh, we're moving to Columbus, Ohio, which <laughs> is like, hey, I'm a senior in high school. I've right. heard that the senior year in high school is really fun. Uh, so I'll just stay here at Granny's and you guys go ahead to Columbus. No, yeah. sorry. And uh, I, I was surprised at how insistent he was that that uh, that I do that because I thought my proposed solution was a perfectly good one at any right. rate. I, I can't answer as to why he was so adamant, but moving to Columbus for the senior year uh, was was uh, interesting and fun and an opportunity and not fun, uh, an opportunity uh, that came knocking at my door. Um, it was there that uh, one of the liaison officers for the Air Force Academy visited my high school, Linda McKinley High School. Right. And uh, asked me if I was uh, interested in going to the Air Force Academy. And uh, it was already the spring of 64. So too late to apply for the class of 68. He said, but you have to take a chance and go to the Air Force Academy prep school, which means yeah. that you have to join the Air Force as a reservist and uh, go to basic training. Then you'll go out to the prep school. And if you're good enough, you'll get an appointment and go on. And uh, so I have always jokingly said that 
I went to the Air Force Academy because it was the scholarship opportunity, the farthest away from home, and the uniforms were really cool, <laughs> uh, which is at, at my level of maturity is probably was probably not far from the truth. But right. Uh, so at, at any rate, uh, that's the way I ended up in Colorado Springs. I think I was similar. Like I hadn't even you had a military background when I was growing up. You know, we read about things like West Point and Annapolis in history books, but I thought it was like, okay, these were those guys who eventually became president, learned how to shoot guns and fight wars, and that's about it. I had no concept of of military academies until same thing. Like a liaison officer came to a college tonight for my sister, and she ended up going to the academy, graduated in '96, and then I sort of following in her footsteps, which I did want to admit at the time, but in retrospect, I was. Um, ended up going there too and graduated in 98. So liaison officers yeah. are important and uh, you never know what's going to lead you there. Yeah, you're exactly right. To this day, I have uh, the highest respect uh, for for the liaison officers and for high school counselors. I, oftentimes people don't realize that even if the liaison comes to the to visit a school, uh, they probably are, are pointed in the direction uh, to look and interview kids by the counselors. Right. And so uh, those counselors are just critically important. So I feel very lucky that uh, having been at the school and in Columbus less than certainly less than a year that uh, that the counselor thought of me when uh, when this particular opportunity came knocking. So and you were there, too. So you go to the academy in 65, I think, was right. your uh, uh, four degree year, freshman year. Mm-hmm. And the first black cadet had been there just six years prior to you. So we're still talking like historical newness of being a cadet at the academy. I mean, what what was that experience like generally? Um, and then what was it like being so new? I would think like you were there with, uh, you know, Chuck Bush, who was the first black cadet there. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, what was it like at that time? Yeah, well, Chuck Bush had already graduated. And uh, so we certainly we we knew that it was kind of the cutting edge when when my classmates and I African-American classmates and I got there uh, and uh, let's see three of us uh, yeah three of us had been together at the prep school so we we at least knew that that knew each other I'm sure some but, just so I can pause it sir I'm sure some people who are listening are going to wonder which squad were you in? And they're going to shout it out when they hear this. So which squad were you in at the prep school? Uh, gee, I think it was B. Okay. Uh, they, they can get their B squads out now. So you said three of you yeah. guys were to get to the prep school. <laughs> right. It, in fact, one of my prep school classmates, uh, God rest his soul, just passed away. A guy named H. Owenby. And uh, he, he is famous to me, at least, because uh, towards the end of the prep school year, our dormitory started to stink. <laughs> and, I mean, more than more than just athletic socks and old gym clothes uh, laying around. And so the TI had us scrubbing the dormitory from top to bottom, and we could not get rid of it. It was not until years later that uh, H. Uh, Ownby owned up to the fact that he and a couple of his buddies came over and in cracks at the, in the corners of the walls <laughs> and, and the floors put Limburger cheese. <laughs> and uh, so... That was uh, that was that was the rest of that story. Oh, uh, but when we got when we got to the academy, there were uh, Chuck Bush and his colleagues uh, uh, had graduated, uh, 
Okay. Uh, there were no African-American cadets in the senior class, so there were no firsties. There was one junior, a uh, guy named Tom Cunningham, uh, really a, a, a fantastic guy, uh, five sophomores and us, uh, five, six more at the time. And so uh, it was it was a relatively small group. We all knew each other. Um, and uh, progress through the academy was was interesting um, in that um, it did not reflect at least as much in hindsight as I thought it would what was happening around the country. Okay. So um, were there were there uh, particular times when when discrimination of one sort or another took place? Absolutely the case. Uh, it happened to some of my classmates, uh, perhaps more than than others. Uh, why that was the case, I, I really don't know, uh, other than the circumstance of, of what squadron, for example, they were in and how isolated they were. Right. Um, but uh, certainly it was there. Um, I can remember, and I don't remember who made the remark, uh, walking across the Trotso when um, the day that uh, Dr. King was assassinated and, uh, wow. and one or two cadets chortling at the idea that uh, – that they had, uh, the world was rid of Dr. King. Wow. So, uh, but that, that was probably, um, um, a minority opinion, at least as expressed there. So, uh, but, but there were a few things, uh, sometimes I I would have to say I didn't even recognize it. Um, and one of my classmates, a guy named Jim Love, um, we were at the end of uh, first class uh, summer, just before the start of the academic year, and they were introducing all the summer uh, group commanders. And I had been the summer group commander for survival. And uh, I didn't realize until after that whole thing was over, he said, hey, ha, they never introduced you. Hmm. What's up with that? And so a few things like that. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, uh the shared military experience is um, is a pretty good uh, bonding experience. We weren't exactly in foxholes together there at the Air Force Academy, but I, I think you probably would agree that the the shared pain of getting through is uh, makes for some pretty lasting and tight bonds. Yeah, it's common stressors of a sort. I mean, I, like I said, I talked to Jamie today, and we were roommates, you know, at the right. academy during basic training. So, and I was just in his wedding. So we, my my closest friends. Our, our academy grads, Jarmika Reese, another guy who played basketball while we were there. He's mm-hmm. we're really good friends in each other's weddings. So definitely tight bonds. These days in the world in general, there's more of, I would say, a forceful or aggressive, you know, type of response to the discrimination that occurs. That's one piece of it. Another piece I would say is I, like you, may have been discriminated against many times during my life. I grew up in Texas where 10 years before me, the high school was segregated. Mm-hmm. Um, before I got there and but I you know I never really experienced maybe in my life I think five or six times what I what I would have called discrimination so I, I didn't really feel it the same way but these days you see it more at that time did different people respond differently to the the slice they saw or what was the experience like for responding to whatever you saw happening that maybe was that you saw that wasn't right any type of bias that happened at that time 
Yeah, I I I think the response was uh, it was um, it was pretty pretty uh, visceral. It was it would have been confrontational. Okay. Um, interestingly, with so few African American cadets there, uh, one one of the fascinating things to me, and it probably is not related at all, is how many African American cadets were uh, were uh, uh, wing open uh, boxing champions at various weight classes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and I have no idea if that made any difference or not. But but and I was not a, my boxing experience. I, I remember being matched up with one of my classmates, a guy named Dick Rivers, who uh, I think Dick had some had some academic things going so that uh, he couldn't do his thing uh, on the football team. So he was off. Well, so they matched us up by weight, uh, but nobody told me that Dick Rivers was like the Golden Glove champion of oh, uh, no. the Greater St. Louis area. So I'm I'm kind of in the Mike Tyson mode. I think I'm pretty good at this until <laughs> the first time Rivers hits me in the nose, and uh, I'm seeing stars. But but I had classmates, African American classmates, that were were uh, tremendous uh, boxers, and that, I don't know. That's that seemed to sort of spill over, so that. Uh, if somebody sort of felt like they were picked on, I guess they took it out of the box. That, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, wait a minute, maybe these guys will gang up on you or something. You better not do that. I right. don't, that's it. That is a probably a spurious, uh, reaction of an immature, uh, cadet. Well, so, I mean, we all had different ways of dealing with it. And I think, um, a couple of questions around that. One of them is you were involved in the way of life committee. I, I honestly didn't know that the organization went back that far. Um, but can you tell me about what it was like then, um, and, and how it was helpful? Right. Um, I think it was, um, we thought we were being pretty bold to uh, get something started like that. Uh, it did become apparent and and I think discrimination became more apparent as frankly, we got more, uh, African-American cadets in, in the following classes. And so the Way of Life Committee, whereas the small numbers when we started, certainly, uh, I mean, we all knew each other. Uh, and so the freshmen and the sophomores, uh, we, we were uh, very cordial. Uh, Tom Cunningham as the lone junior. Other cadets, non-minority cadets would come to us if they had to go through four squadron. If there was a chance, they would have to go through and meet Cadet Cunningham. It's like, man, you got to help us with Cadet Cunningham, he's going to eat us alive if we go through there. Right. Most of us were like, hey, Cunningham is a wild dog. We're not going in there with you. You just go by <laughs> yourself. So, but as more cadets came in and and others did, dis, did involve uh, experience situations that were that were discriminatory, this idea that that uh, of having a group that was aware and could raise those issues. Uh, became important to us, but perhaps uh, TQ even more important than that was, and I'll attribute what I'm saying to to my classmates as well, and they they can dispute me later. There was a feeling amongst us of a couple of things. First of all, that we were living in an ivory tower, so that the things that we saw on the news or read in the newspaper about how African American students, our contemporaries, were 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 trying to change uh, America, how they were being treated as they did that 
the sacrifices that they were making, uh, we we sort of had the feeling that um, in our ivory tower at the Air Force Academy, which which was wonderful, uh, relatively, that that we perhaps have not contributed uh, as much as we should. So there mm. was there was a little bit of a vow that. You know, for the rest of our time, uh, we uh, we have a debt because uh, we were shielded, protected, otherwise occupied. And although there were things like the Way of Life Committee, which we thought was was very important, uh, that uh, we had not had a chance to step up yet. And we thought, uh, I think rightfully so, that we ought to be stepping up for the rest of our careers. Very nice. So... Uh, I'd say at least uh, we, that we have tried to uh, that we have tried to do that. And the Way of Life Committee, for the listener who may not know, it's like a Black Student Union um, as it's formed now. Since back then, to be a support group of sorts to minority students, uh, students of color, and I know for me, so I was a president of the Way of Life Committee my my first year, and um, and it was a big deal for us to have that support group, whether it was from responding to certain issues that were occurring at the time or even just helping people through who are struggling, maybe academically or athletically or militarily, whatever the case may be. Absolutely. And, and then too, whenever people succeeded, we try to pull people up behind us like Jamie. Uh, you know, he was basic, uh, first basic cadet training commander. Um, yep. And so, you know, I, I believe I was his XO and we would try to bring other people on to get them leadership experiences that we thought maybe they wouldn't get otherwise. So in many ways it served as a support system. Um, was it, was it like that for you all the time? Were you able to help as you were successful, like in your commander positions, help others kind of come up in that way? Yeah, I, I think we were particularly for, uh, for the, uh, I would say freshman and sophomore cadets as we got to our second and first class year, um, to try on the one hand to to make sure that they understood what the challenge where the challenges were, where the pitfalls were, and uh, to uh, if they needed help to ask for help. And uh, I was uh, I was always uh, in awe of some of them because frankly they seemed much more focused uh, than I was when I was a Dooley, and uh, and so they they they. Uh, they were helpers as much as they, perhaps more than they needed help in some cases. Hmm. But I, I think it was, uh, in, in hindsight, I think it was a great idea. And I should add here that it was aided by, um, at the time, uh, we had one, and I think by the time I left, two African-American uh, professors on the faculty. Joe, okay. Monroe, Joe Monroe was one, uh, retired Colonel Joe Monroe and retired Colonel Walt Atkins. Uh, was the other. Joe was uh, went on to become head of the computer science department. And uh, Walt was a uh, math instructor, I think. Hmm. And uh, I'm not sure where he ended up there. But uh, but they were they were extremely supportive uh, going through that process. And they frankly, uh, both were very young at the time. So they didn't have a lot of clout, but they certainly were willing to be supportive of uh, of, uh, of the minority cadets there. So hats off to both of both of those guys. And, and I'll come back to that in just a second. I'm probably taking too long in my, my less than distinguished cadet career. Oh, no, I, I will tell you, tell you two, um, 
takeaways from that is uh, one is maturity uh, from my part. Uh, I didn't realize until later on how immature I had been as a cadet. And so I, I regret that, but uh, it was just me. And I, I don't suppose I could have gone any other way. What did and that second, look like? So if, if I could for a second, what did that, because I, I know there'll be cadets listening to this. And right. so that maybe they can reflect and hear it themselves. What did that immaturity look like? Yeah, I, I think it was a lack of focus. Um, it, it, at some point in time, and I'm going to say post third class year, post sophomore year, uh, my focus became um, started to shift more towards the war in mm. Vietnam. Uh, that, hey, we're all going to the war in Vietnam, that it's frankly going to be better than putting up with this crap here. Right. And so we just need to get through through this so we can, uh, can uh, for lack of a better description, go, go gather the glory and, and fight the war. Hmm. Uh, that was, uh, uh, first of all, a naive way to look at war. That's for certain. I learned that pretty quick after I got there. And and uh, the other is that it was sort of a substitute for for a lack of academic focus on doing some of the things that I should have done. Right. Um, and later on, uh, one of the great things about the Air Force Academy, and I'll always value that uh, education and, and probably the education process, uh, at least as much as the education itself, was that I, I – I figured out that I'd learned uh, much more there than than I had uh, than I ever gave myself credit for. So, uh, but graduation was the big thing. We're all going to go fly jets, and we're going to go fight fight the war. Right. Uh, again, a, a fairly naive uh, way to look at things, but but it was it was part of my mindset. So you said uh, there was uh, the immaturity is one thing, and then the second thing was uh, a, a lack of focus. Uh, okay. on on um, it, on not just the here and now but in being better prepared for for being a part of the profession of arms right um, i um, I was taking some of it in but I was not taking in enough of it at least in hindsight uh, I, so I what would you do differently some, like if you went back and did it again or you're telling a cadet today and you've been there in, in multiple roles as an ALC and as commandant how do you right. tell a kid at now, like, okay, here's how to prepare. The, the academic piece is, I think, pretty straightforward, but that's how to prepare to be a part of the uh, the, the armed forces. Yeah, I, I think it, a lot of it would depend upon uh, the person's background. If they came from a, from a military family, and uh, then there is a chance uh, that they uh, would have great insight into how, how the military works, and in particular, the officer corps. So as I said, my dad was a career army NCO, and uh, so I really had no idea how how the officer corps was kind of constituted, how it worked, how you got promoted, what it all meant. Uh, I just I just remember that when when my dad, if he was uh, frustrated with with me for one reason or another, it was. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's you're going. Let's go get a haircut. You're going to get a haircut right now. Yeah. And uh, so uh, that's what I mean. I think by by the lack of focus uh, or the lack of of, of of taking every opportunity to to understand um, 
what the business uh, that I was about to enter was all about. Right. I I tell people or have told people that that one of the most important things is to is to understand what the company you work the company you work for understand what it values. What does the company value? And uh, I I think I I knew that to some extent, but I don't think I knew it uh, frankly to the uh, to the extent that some of my classmates, particularly those that that came from. Uh, a military family, a, a military officer, military family, and a, a senior officer, military family. Uh, not in a bad way, but uh, just that was that was their mind, their upbringing, that was their set of, uh, of understanding, and so they um, they brought that with them. Uh, in some cases, it was an advantage; in other cases, it it was not. Uh, but still it was, uh, a more complete set, at least in my view, uh, than I had, uh, all of the opportunity. Go ahead. Yeah. If I could spin back, uh, just a little bit to the times you were in, cause you mentioned the Vietnam war and then you mm-hmm. also mentioned sort of the civil rights backdrop that's happening right. in the country. Yeah. Um, to a degree, uh, we live in similar times where there are all these issues around what's happening in the NFL and, you know, what's happening with, say, Black Lives Matter. And what's ha- and so right. there's all this activism with regard to, uh, you know, young people are participating in it at universities across the country. Right. And then yeah. there's the war on terror. There's all this, you know, and it's a little bit different because there's not as large of a percentage of people serving as there were at that time. There's not a as much of a focus on those who serve, but it's still, I think there in the, in the light a lot more so, especially with the different uh, sectors um, highlighting the the impact of the military. And we just passed uh, Memorial day Um, for you as a leader with the experience you have looking back, what, what critical things should a person think about when trying to lead in those kind of times when it's a divisive time, when it's a, you know, a kind of a, there's a, there's a, a kind of a spark in the air that could kind of explode at any time, so to speak. How do you lead? How do you think about how to navigate those times well? And what would you say to those people who are trying to trying to get through that right now? Yeah, I, that's a great question, and frankly, it's a complicated question, complicated answer. But I, I will give it a shot here. So, so the parallel is um, no way you remember 1968, but in 1968, I think the Olympics. Uh, when the black athletes on the podium uh, mm. raised their fists during the mm. playing of the national anthem, definitely, and uh, that that was uh, for I think most of us there at the academy that was a milestone. Uh, it was a protest uh, occurring within the context of the national anthem, and uh, and how to absorb that and how to process it. Wow. Um, a good portion of the reaction was was very much like the reaction to the. Uh, to the NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem. Now, uh, from the perspective though, of a minority, it was, um, absolutely understandable as to, as to why they did that. Uh, but, uh, getting others to understand that was, was, uh, I think difficult at best. Uh, the leaders, uh, at the time, um, uh, frankly, uh, were were absolutely consumed by by managing the social dynamics uh, of of uh, of the of the youth of the '60s that were involved in the war, 
and mm. trying to get to the other side. So again, you, not that it would be part of your, 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 uh, experience, but, it, but it wasn't mine. Uh, the, uh, it was the last, uh, vestiges of the draft, which, mm. uh, by the way, I think was a good thing. Uh, but, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, blame laid upon draftees, uh, as being somewhat, um, un- unmanageable, unable to be led. Uh, to do the right thing, to uh, to uh, spending their entire Vietnam experience smoking dope, uh, when in fact the leadership challenge was perhaps uh, the greatest that uh, that the military has has seen, right? Uh, because that was the constitution of the way that the armed forces were. Not, I personally favor that that model. That is a, a small core. Uh, professional soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and coast guardsmen uh, that is rounded out in uh, that is rounded out in wartime uh, by uh, by those in the reserve and and or draftees. So so that universal service of some sort is uh, is part of growing up, part of being a citizen, and all that goes with it. Um, but that experience uh, so tested our leadership at the time. Uh, that that I think we were we were at least in the short term glad to walk away from that to an all volunteer force. The leaders mm. uh, that it succeeded, the leaders that succeeded were were both uh, uh, empathetic, uh, but uh, but they were also disciplined and and able to impart that to those that they were leading. Now, now in the in the strictest sense. Um, that was relatively easy to do because um, um, because the consequences of being undisciplined were were pretty bad. I mean, right. somebody's going to die. Maybe you're going to die, and so that that added to it. But uh, because the war went in fits and starts, and patrols and no patrols, and and a garrison uh, operation, and then an extended patrol operation, and bombing campaigns, and no bombing campaigns. Those fits and starts, uh, unfortunately, uh, I think, uh, made the garrison leadership very difficult, and and uh, the lack of uh, uh, the lack of engagement uh, left people with too much too much time on their hands, and uh, and the results were were really pretty devastating. We had riots on ships at sea. We had uh, officers getting fragged, if you're familiar with that word. Right. Uh, that so is, like shot uh, by a friendly fire. Right. Exactly. Uh, so it it uh, the outcome was was was, I think, very bad uh, in that we walked away from the draft. Uh, the positive side of the outcome was particularly in the United States Army. Uh, they took the lessons uh, learned there, uh, particularly with regard to how to pursue uh, the war. And, and I think you saw those in, uh, particularly in uh, Secretary Carlucci and and uh, General Powell, and uh, and the the officers of that generation and their approach uh, during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and that is, you know, sort of this concept of of uh, um, making sure that what's going on is is understood to be in the national interest, and then bringing overwhelming force to the battle. Now, at that time, at, at the same time, I wonder, from a military perspective, those have to be tremendous challenges. And with the volunteer force now, 
um, all those putting a strain on individuals who serve. Um, it's maybe putting people who are more committed to serving in those positions. How about the social backdrop? As a military officer during that time, how do you lead with all that's going on, you know, socially? How do you navigate? You said you need empathy and you need discipline. Um, what right. other main skills do you think were important for someone who's who's feeling that today? I mean, you're part of, we have a, a message or a group on Facebook, the Minority Officers, Minority Air Force Officers group on Facebook that there's always people trying to connect with one another for camaraderie, but also express challenges they're going through as officers. Then you superimpose what's going on socially right now to that. Um, what besides discipline and empathy you think are key skills to be successful as a leader during a time uh, like this? Yeah. I think if you're a leader or, or aspire to a leadership position as a minority, um, I, I think it's absolutely critical that, that, and I'm sorry, I have to fall back on the, on the, on the, uh, on the empathy, or I guess you could say on, on the desire to, to know those that you would lead right, uh, or at least aspire to lead. So what does that look and like? So, Can you, um, empathy yeah. is, is I, I agree a hundred percent. Do you have a scenario right. where you saw or have dealt with, um, that said, man, my empathy carried me through a tough situation here. Right. Um, so, um, it, it kind of, it, it progresses at least for me and in, in my growing up in the air force from the first one going to pilot training in Del Rio, Texas. And the first time I walked into the officers club there and there, there was uh, actually one of my classmates, Ken Stevenson was there and another fellow, a guy named Ken Dollar. There was like nobody that looked like me. Right. Uh, the music was not, was not what I would have chosen. And, uh, it seemed like very much a throwback to what I, the circumstances I'd grown up in. Um, and so there were a couple of ways to react to that. You, you could, um, you could uh, sort of uh, retreat and uh, and try to become Fortress Hopper, or uh, you could uh, reach forward and try to um, try to understand your circumstances and and remember what your objective was, and that's to get those wings and get out of there. Right. Um, and so, at least at, at that particular point in time, that was part of it. But the empathy part is is later on, as as uh, particularly as an aviator. And not nearly enough other black aviators. Uh, you you would go to bases and be in circumstances and see other minority airmen, and so um, it, it, I view it a little bit as a test. Uh, I know some of my colleagues um, for the entirety of their careers would see uh, a group of other minority airmen and and go. I don't mean my colleagues from the Air Force Academy. I mean my fellow uh, officers right. uh, would go go in the opposite direction. So do you uh, mean like these are other minority officers that would do that or other um, yes. white officers? Okay. Yes. That, uh, for Why do you think reason, they did that? I'm sorry? Why do you think they did that? Uh, because they were, they were uh, reluctant to... Um, I guess to be seen as part of the old joke of, of uh, uh, five black guys standing together uh, at, uh, at whatever a social function uh, on the base or whatever. The only thing missing is a basketball. Uh, <laughs> right. That 
kind of stuff. So, right. so to avoid that, uh, they, they would fail to acknowledge, uh, walk away, turn away, go the other direction or, or whatever, hmm. uh, rather than, um, sort of, uh, the, the cultural embrace that, that says, Hey, at least introduce yourself and see right. what everybody does and where everybody's going and, and, and that sort of thing. And that, that reluctance, um, unfortunately, uh, can carry through a career. Uh, but I don't want to dwell on that. I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate and a relatively, uh, small part of the process. The important thing is to be able to extend that, uh, that understanding that, that, um, uh, that willingness to be, be a part of the unit, uh, that, that embraces everybody in the unit, white, black, uh, Hispanic, uh, Asian, uh, and, uh, and get everybody headed in, in the right direction. Uh, my, my amateur psychological theory is, is that frankly, um, African American, particularly senior NCOs, uh, and, uh, probably to a, to a lesser extent, officers are better at that than, than, uh, anybody. Right. That was my experience in the Air Force. African American senior NCOs were, were, uh, just outstanding non-commissioned leaders. Hmm. Uh, they had the respect of those that, uh, that worked for them and with them and that they worked for and, uh, great, uh, great role models and great examples. Uh, you could not help, but view many of them and, and wonder why they were not wearing the captain's bars, hmm. uh, at least as well as you were, or perhaps instead of you, uh, because their, their skills, uh, were tremendous. And it was that ability to empathize and relate to and bring everybody in to get all um, moving in the same direction that made you feel that right. way? Absolutely. Yeah. You summarize it very well. In your career, um, you got to the academy and then you flew in the Vietnam War. Um, you talked about some of the lessons you learned there. Um, but as a pilot, you flew C-130s there and then you were an yep. instructor pilot and, uh -huh. and then went to school your career, if we went through it piece by piece, we could have three or four shows and maybe I'd be honored to have you back sometime to just hear more thoughts of, of what happened there. But one of the things I wanted to hear about for you is um, I have a number of friends who are pilots, some, you know, fighter pilots, some many more so heavy pilots. Um, what would you say in terms of for you to make it to three stars, you had to navigate your career well early in your Air Force career as a pilot? What are some of the key things you think that are important to, to know and do um, in addition to what you've talked about as far as being involved and not being Fortress Hopper? Um, what, yeah. what are some of the key things that you, you did and think others ought to do to be successful pilots uh, in the Air Force? Yeah, uh, but I think, again, you have to make every effort to understand uh, what's important in the pilot world uh, to give yourself the broadest sort of the broadest uh, avenue of approach to the executive suite. Is so, there an answer to that, that what's the most important in the pilot world? Yes. And it varies by where you are in your career. So, so just getting out of pilot training and going to your first airplane, uh, really your, your responsibility, what, what, what your leaders are looking for you to do is, is to become an expert in that airplane. Um, because that's, that's what you do. That's, that is the entire, virtually the entire focus of what you do, particularly in this day and age when, when 
uh, additional duties are, are somewhat minimized. Uh, the, the, uh, the entire focus has to be on becoming, uh, uh, proficient in, in just flying the airplane and then, uh, absolutely proficient in tactical employment of the airplane. So, um, for, for those that are that are marching through the through the lieutenant and and captain ranks uh, and majors, you're you're looking to to get to be an instructor pilot in the airplane, uh, flight examiner, and then uh, to go off to the to the sort of warfare finishing schools uh, out at uh, out at Nellis uh, and the like. So so that particular portion of the road it, it actually is fairly well laid out. What you have to sort of take with a grain of salt and, and perhaps sometimes even uh, look to resist is um, for the high performers, is, there is always a tendency that somebody in the leadership position is going to say, hey, this kid is really good. I'm going to bring him up here to be my um, exec, assistant exec, you know, the wing exec. So, so you're right. a young captain. Uh, so it is great to go do that. It is a great experience. Uh, but always remember that the first thing in front of your name uh, is that AFSC is is uh, the aviation AFSC. So going to be the wing exec is great, uh, particularly if you're already an instructor pilot or a flight examiner. But if you're not, uh, then if someone were to ask me, my advice would be you're not ready to be a wing commander's exec uh, you until you do that that IP or flight examiner and or flight examiner sort of thing. Okay. So sometimes those are tough to turn down because they 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 are great, they sound great, but you need to sort of be in the right place. And frankly, uh, that's the that's where mentors come in mm. to have somebody to bounce those things off and say, you know, what's what should be the next sort of the next steps for me, and. Um, and then uh, other opportunities will will come. I'll never I'll never forget when I was when I left the C one thirty and I was going to be an instructor pilot at Vance and I was down at the at the PIT course in San Antonio, right. and uh, a new friend uh, who was coming from I was coming from C one thirties he was coming from uh, OB tens not OB tens anyway he was a fact in Vietnam either O ones O twos or or OV-10. I think it was, I'm not sure what. Anyway, we're just about at the end of the course. And uh, he comes up to me one day and says, wow, that was really close. And I said, what was really close? He said, I just aced you out by, uh, you know, one point or whatever to be uh, the distinguished graduate of this class. Hmm. And I was so embarrassed because I had no idea that there was something called a distinguished graduate that was going to come out of that class. How stupid could I be? (laughs) <laughs> well, pretty stupid, uh, because I, I did not know that. Yeah. Now, I don't know that that would have altered anything. I could have done something better. I'd like to think that I was doing the very best that I could. Right. But just the fact that I did not understand that part of the process um, said to me that, that uh, you know, you, you were not paying attention. Right. Um, did you know that you didn't know, though? I mean, I think, I think that's a sort of a classic... Um, issue. And that's honestly, sir, that's the reason for this show is because I think there are so many things um, that are going on in the world around us that we have no idea are happening, but they're shaping our lives. And exactly. it's true in the military, it's true in the civilian world, but 
is it like you could say stupid, but I think it's more ignorant that you just didn't know. And, and I, I got to feel like you didn't know that you didn't know. Right. Right. Oh, right. Absolutely. I didn't know that I didn't know. Uh, so whether you call it stupid or ignorant, it was uh, it was not paying enough attention to my profession and what the profession value. Right. And so. Uh, so that's the I, that's the kind of global lesson you're saying. You could map out. OK. Oh, let absolutely. Let me find out now what's the key important thing for my pr- profession. I'm sure you'd say that applies to any Air Force career field or even outside of the military. Know what's absolutely. important in your profession and maximize yes. whatever opportunities are there. Absolutely. So let me let me fast forward a little bit and and perhaps connect this stories a little bit. So after that after that experience, I said, okay, if I'm doing another course or something like this, if they have that opportunity, I'm going to make sure that I give that get that a, a really good shot to see if I can do that. So at uh, uh, SOS, uh, I I did that. So I was a distinguished graduate from SOS. And again, uh, being a bit naive, uh, I did not know what what would come from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, again, if I had had a mentor sort of person to talk to, I would have realized that that did a couple of things for me that I had no idea what they were. The first was it got me an automatic review for resident uh, graduate education. So that, that was good because my 2.4 GPA or whatever the heck it was coming out of the academy was not quite up to the standard to do that. Right. Uh, the second thing was I got my first OER efficiency report back after that. And it had been signed on the bottom by this brigadier general. And I had no idea who he was. Hmm. And so I'm talking to my buddies there and I say, well, I, this guy named Umstead, General Stanley, Stanley Umstead, I remember to this day, signed my OER. What is the deal with that? And somebody said, oh, you know what? You're a DG at SOS, so your your OER. These are the rules of the time. Automatically got pushed forward to headquarters AETC to get a general officer's endorsement. Wow. Well, that was a that was a gold standard thing at that particular point in time. So, so I got that. That propelled me to graduate school, where I was lucky enough to do that DG thing again, and I show up at the Air Force Academy. Right. Um, with a with a brand new uh, master's degree, and uh, I'm I'm shuffled off to be the the deputy director of cadet logistics, right. and uh, so he, here's here's some of the sacrifices that had continued, and frankly benefited me I think my entire career. So about the time that I get there, there were maybe five or six African American. Uh, uh, instructors now, this is seven years after graduation, eight years after graduation, uh, seven or eight instructors and, and members of the staff there at the Air Force Academy. And they had been lobbying the Air Force Academy that, you know what, in all of these senior positions and these very important staff positions, you have no minorities in these positions. Hmm. And so the superintendent at the time, a guy named Ken Tallman, um, I don't know if, if General Tallman would acknowledge that he heard exactly that. But all of a sudden he looks around and he, he reaches down and says, okay, well, listen, I'm going to bring Hopper up here as my aide de camp. Wow. And, uh, so can you explain what an aide de camp is. What is it? Yes, sir. Yeah. So it's, it is, it is the, the general officer. If, if your position earns you an, an aide de camp, uh, normally an officer aide and perhaps enlisted aides as well. 
the officer aide uh, normally is is sort of the point person that liaises between your exec, your secretary, puts together your schedule, goes with you on trips. Uh, in this particular case, carries his cigarettes and orders his martinis. <laughs> but, but ostensibly, uh, the reason is uh, to teach this aide de camp because perhaps this person has some potential to teach them what a senior officer thinks about when they're making decisions. Wow. So Ken Tolman brought me in and I have used this. I use this the rest of my career. He said, you're only going to be here a year. So I'm disappointed. I'm thinking I'm going to be hobnobbing for the rest of my time at the Air Force Academy. Right. He says, you're only going to be there a year because my job is to bring you up and teach you how I make decisions, how I use the staff, what I think about, where I go, what I do, the things that scare me, the things that please me, so that perhaps if your Air Force career continues, uh, these will be things that you understand how they work. And uh, So now you're on the inside now, basically. You had the opportunity to get to see things at the highest level. I, I did. I was absolutely on the inside. Tallman was a class of 46 at West Point. Wow. His classmates at the time, Lou Allen uh, Jr. was the chief of staff of the Air Force. Hmm. Uh, Wesley Puzvar was a was a president of the uh, University of Pittsburgh. Wow. So they were all over the place, and uh, so I, I, it was a rare opportunity, and uh, and so I was very lucky to get it. And frankly, I, the only reason I think I got that was because of the minority officers at the academy at that time agitating for representation right. and not being selfish enough to, to include themselves in that process. Right. So in stumbles John Hopper and he's, he is the lucky recipient of all of that largesse yeah. from, uh, from, from these guys. So hard so, work that people are doing sometimes is not being rewarded to them personally ab- may accrue yeah, to the ab- benefit of many more. Absolutely. No question about it. And, and another debt that I owe is that, uh, is is the recognition that uh, that uh, you're not necessarily going to reap some benefit from from saying the right things, doing the right things, having others asking others to do the right thing that uh, that that may accrue to somebody else, but that's okay because it's the right thing to do. So these these guys uh, and one girl, General Marcy Harris, uh, was there on the staff uh, as well. Uh, certainly, certainly moved me forward, and I'll forever be grateful and indebted to those to those folks. So after this, it seems like that that experience where you did that aide de camp job, you're also a squadron air officer commander, which is basically like the officer in charge of a, a group of cadets. Um, right. A lot of your titles after that have the t- have the word chief or commander, unless you're a student. After that, chief commander or deputy commander, all the way through. Uh, different headquarters, different positions in the plane, out of the plane, um, along the way until you became uh, the the commandant of cadets while you were there when I was at the academy. Um, How much did that having the inside experience help you navigate those upcoming positions uh, as the chief of a particular area or, or, or a commander or deputy commander in the different jobs you did along the way? Yeah, well, that that experience as a captain and, and junior major was was um, was sort of an alignment kind of thing because if you recall, I, as I said, I'm at the eight, seven or eight year point. Right. So I've repaid my debt from pilot training. I'm looking at all of my all of my classmates, at least some of my classmates that are flyers, 
they're getting out, starting to go for the airlines. So I'm in this quandary that I think everybody perhaps goes through if they're honest with themselves. Do I stay or do I go? Uh, what is what is life going forward going to look like for me? And it was during that period of time that that, that I made what I called the all the way in decision. Mm. Said, okay, this is it. This is my profession, and uh, and so I'm nose to the grindstone. This is this is what I intend to do. Uh, going forward, the, the, there were a couple of defining uh, experiences. Uh, by the time I got to McGuire Air Force Base, after uh, ACSC, uh, which, again, my poor wife, bless her heart, I can remember looking through the window at her cutting this. We were renting this house while I was at graduate school that was had a big yard. So she was out there slaving away, cutting the yard while I'm studying and, and trying to meet this goal of I'm going to do this DG thing one more time. So right. I was lucky enough to do that. So I get to McGuire. I'm on the list for Lieutenant Colonel. I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm thinking I'm on my way. Uh, it's got to be a flying squadron command next. And uh, sure enough, I got command of a maintenance squadron. Mm. Best thing that ever happened to me. Okay. Uh, Were you disappointed it, when you heard it, though? I was disappointed initially when I heard it. I thought, hey, man, this is one of those things. My record looks like, what's the deal here? Yeah. Uh, but the other side of that coin was uh, 750 airmen, five officers, including myself, and the world's best senior NCOs. And uh, absolutely a defining experience for, particularly for aviators, who by the time they get command in general, do not know Jack. And you can quote me on that about how the Air Force runs. Why so, is that? Uh, just a, a lack of opportunity to see the rest of the world. We're too busy yeah. dragging our butts and an, an air crew at the most. Or if you're a single seat, single seat guy dragging yourself in the airplane and maybe uh, three wingmen around the sky, you don't have a chance to understand what who needs childcare. What do they use? What is that for? Right. Is that important? How do I how do I look at three shifts of work day in and day out and what the effect is on my airmen on their lives going forward? Right. Um, what about what are good airmen and bad airmen? And when I come in, for example, do I reset the clock and uh, and everybody is a good airman until they prove otherwise? Well, the short answer to that is no. Uh, the bad airmen, everybody already knows who they are. They're just waiting to see if you're smart enough to know who they are and are going to take the appropriate action. Right. But it was it was a defining experience as far as 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 the leadership lab sort of school thing. What was one? Do you have a time uh, like a thing that stands out during that time? I, I know you mentioned a few s sort of examples there, but does any particular experience yeah. stand out during that time? Right. Yeah, I do. So um, I had uh, I was the maintenance squadron commander. We had just had an ORI, uh, which we failed. It's a big the, inspection. The, the operational readiness inspection, which is the report card for the wing, we failed the operational readiness inspection. Mm. The wing commander got fired. Oh, no. The airbase wing commander was appointed the interim commander, and we were told in three months we'll be back here, and you boys better have your stuff together. So we uh, did that. Um, we uh, we uh, uh, for this for the retake. Uh, as the as a maintenance the maintenance squadron commander, I was I was sent with the with the uh, hard charging full colonel by the name of Dale Stovall to be the deployed mission commander. So 
uh, long story short, we get out on a deployed mission. Uh, things are, are going along. We're about to do a big airdrop. And um, uh, so General, uh, General, a later General, Colonel Stovall is out uh, ripping up the troops on the line. I can't get a hold of him. And, and all of a sudden, we have not, not an Inspector General generated crisis, but we have a real fire uh, out uh, out on the flight line on one of the airplanes. So I get to wow. make the decision to, to go or to go with the mission or to stop everything and try to fight the fire. So, um, so I decided that, uh, you know, this is what really happened. So we, we got to make this drop to, to, to these people that are in trouble anyway. So we go fly and, and it turned out in hindsight to be a good decision, but, uh, the support that I had from, from my folks that were deployed as well as the, the folks in the command post. And it's, when you go out like that, it's an ad hoc team that you put together. And, uh, and so the leadership has to be, uh, instantaneous, uh, the followership, which is very important has to be instantaneous because you right. don't have much time to, to do your thing. So a defining experience, uh, for me, uh, skip, skipping ahead. Uh, I always wanted to be a, a wartime wing commander. So wait, when they came back, did you pass? Yeah, we passed. Yeah, we yeah. passed, and and uh, we passed, uh, and a couple of a uh, couple of the commanders, one of the flying squadron commanders, I'll never forget, who told me afterwards that after that first failure, the wing commander took his efficiency report and said, "This is going in my drawer until we take the retake, and then we'll see how you do." Oh no! So it was uh, uh, in those days, uh, uh, not passing your ORI was was a was not a good thing. Right. As I said, the wing commander was fired and and uh, a new guy was put in there. So sorry, you said so, you were fasting forward. Yeah. So fast forward uh, on leadership experience again. And I always wanted to be a wartime wing commander. I probably had seen 12 o'clock high too many times. <laughs> uh, I had some sort of romantic uh, picture in my mind of what, what that would be like. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Thank the good Lord. I, I got an opportunity to do it. But here's another one of those situations where uh, somebody helps you and you, you don't even know. So I was mm-hmm. a deployed wing commander uh, uh, in uh, Oman, Thumbraid, Oman. Yeah. Uh, I did not know until probably a year, probably two years later, that at the time the decision was being talked about, said, hey, we're going to thinking about sending Hopper over here to be the deployed wing commander at Thumbrate. As somebody stood up and said, uh, well, wait a second. How, uh, what are our Omani allies going to think? Uh, are they second-class citizens because we're sending an African-American wing commander over to Whoa. them? Somebody stood up in that room and said, have you ever met an Omani? Well, you know what? If you put them side by side, most of them look pretty much like Colonel Hopper did does. So, uh, so they're not going to have any, any problems with that. Well, the person that stood up in that room was a guy named Steve Stevens, Hmm. uh, who, who is passed. And, uh, so things intertwined. Steve Stevens stood up, said that I never knew it, got me to Oman and this chance. Wait, he, he stood up, he stood up for you. Not, he wasn't the one who said the negative comment. He said the positive comment. He said the positive comment. He's the one that stood up and said, look, most of the Amanis look just like Hopper. What are you talking about? Got it. And, and, uh, I, I, he never, I never 
knew that he had to do that to interject himself. Right. Uh, I was eternally grateful that he did. But again, another one of those things that I think points out a couple of things, the importance of standing up and the importance of having somebody in the room. Yeah. So having somebody that that understands, empathizes in the most base terms that looks like you. Right. Oh, so he did. He he was he was black himself. Absolutely. So two years down the road. I turn over command of the 89th uh, Ops Group here at the Andrews Air Force Base. And guess who I turn over command to? Uh-oh. Colonel Steve Stevens. There you go. So if you go visit the 89th Ops Group, they'll have two pictures up on the among all of them, two pictures of Ops Group commanders side by side, John Hopper and Steve Stevens. <laughs> uh, no way that we could we could have known that. Wow. Yeah, having but someone again, in the room is major, I think. Um, Absolutely. Developing folks and having people come up behind you is is a way uh, to be able to make sure that stuff happens. Because, again, there are things happening that we don't know about. And having somebody there is the only way that we can make a difference. Right. And that so that's standing up in the room is probably not going to help you. It's and uh, but it is going to make, uh, frankly, the Air Force a better place because you're making use of, of all the talent, not, not me, but with the talent that's available out there. Do you think that people today are willing to, to stand up in the room now? Um, I read a book that you might've heard of, I think it's called the generals. I, I don't remember the exact title, but it's about how air force, not air force, but military generals in general are uh, there. The critique was, that they're becoming more like politicians and less like commanders um, because mm-hmm. of the pressures of how you get promoted and, you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, do you think that people are these days willing to stand up in the room or do you think there could be more of that? Or, uh, and if so, how should people kind of think about how to, how to show up in those situations? Yeah. I, I think that's Tom. Is that Tom Rick's book? I believe so. Yeah. Um, well, I, in, at least in general, I think uh, I, I do agree with with what he says uh, somewhat about about the intrusion of, of uh, and I'll say careerist as opposed to politician, uh, but they're probably interchangeable at, at the at the general officer level. Uh, I don't know that there's more of that or or less of that, uh, but. I think it's critically important that in all sorts of venues uh, that uh, that people are in the room and willing to stand up and be heard. There's an interesting discussion going on uh, right now about uh, about nuclear release authority. And um, so uh, I was just reading an article today about General Keller, uh, General retired Keller, who was a former uh, Stratcom commander, uh, about. Uh, Orders coming down for for uh, for a nuclear uh, release, and uh, the responsibility of the Stratcom commander to make uh, to make that very uh, quick decision: have I just received a lawful order hmm. uh, or not? And to go forward, and there's not not much time there, and designed not to be much time because the situation, of course, may be critical. You get one shot to 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 sort of do that, uh, and so it is absolutely critical that um, at the senior officer ranks that, that you have those that are willing to uh, uh, to be the one in the room that stands up uh, that that asks the tough question that makes the 
the the point of input uh, and the like. I, I I know one of the things that, that you talked about on some of your with some of your guests are, are books that they recommend, and I I have to admit to being uh, not a very good reader, but uh, historical fiction is is uh, is something that I I do uh, sort of like to read. So. I, I used to give all of my execs a copy of a book called Once an Eagle by uh, Anton Meyer. And uh, it, it has been, I know, on, on the United States Army's reading list. Uh, I don't know if it's still there for some time. Uh, but it's the classic, uh, a classic discussion about uh, the uh, dealing with the, the, uh, the dedicated professional as opposed to the, to the, to the military careerist. And uh, it it uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody that wants to read it, but but if you're hoping for a good romantic uh, ending, uh, it's probably not the place to go. Yeah. But it's but it speaks to the fact that <clears throat> that um, that sometimes uh, even well, all of us have flaws, and sometimes even the most flawed good things will get done. Uh, but to depend upon that happening is is a fool's errand. So uh, raising uh, raising uh, airmen uh, all the way from basic airmen all all the way up to to O ten uh, integrity is is a key and important thing, and not just something that you hold close and 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 say, well, I think I have it, but that you're willing to demonstrate and under the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, I give our alma mater a lot of lot of credit. I think it was, uh, uh, I think General Hosmer was the well, this is the superintendent. Yes, sir. Uh, at during an an offsite that that uh, came up with with the outlines of the core values of oh, wow. integ- integrity, service, and excellence. And then, to his credit, I think General Fogelman said, "You know what? That really says it. That really says it all." And uh, and so in a very concise form, it, it talks to you must have somebody in the room uh, with integrity and with and willing uh, in the most dire of circumstances and perhaps at their own personal peril to stand up and say and say what's right. And, you know, and there, even in even I gave you the, the example of Steve Stevens, uh, it, it is not always going to be one person of color standing up for another person of color. Right. <laughs> If you depend on that, then uh, then you're probably hoping against hope. Right. It is it is all good men and women of, of integrity and their responsibility to stand up. That's a good um a good word. And uh, you you've been there. I mean, you were the first black commandant of cadets, um, and I, which is like again the dean of students for the Air Force Academy. And we were proud. Like we came in thinking we had a black basic cadet training group commander, I believe first and second beast. Um, we had like a, I think Anthony Mitchell at the time was mm-hmm. the executive officer for the wing first semester. And then we had a black commandant. We were like, man, we came at the right time to the academy <laughs> to be students of color. So there's a chance for us. And it gave inspiration. And and I want to go through more of your career, but I, I, I know we've, we've had a good conversation already. One of the things I want to pull out is as you got out of the military, um, what was that transition like? I mean, you spent uh, what was it? Thirty-five years yeah. in the Air, Air Force, yep. and then transition out. Um, how were you able to, after having had a full career, 
make the move into the retired life, what, what was what would you give in terms of advice? Is this what, what made it smooth for you and what would make it smooth for others? Yeah, I I don't know that I'm a good advice giver there because I I had determined that I was going to retire. But and I think like most of us, I, I say most of us, judging by my retirement uh, transition, retirement classes, as we sat around shooting the bull about what we wanted to do next. Uh, I would bet you that three quarters of us said, you know what, it'd be great to, to be involved with a nonprofit. Right. And uh, I think based upon the fact that uh, the, the idea of getting up every day and going over to the Pentagon to try and sell our old buddies a new BB of some sort was was just not something that was comfortable for us to do. <laughs> right. So I, I would think as you consider it, though, you, you need to do a couple of things. Uh, one is uh, make sure that you give yourself some time after you retire and before you start that next, uh, if it is a job, start that next job. Uh, I, I did not do that. Uh, I wish that I had. I'm sure my family probably wishes uh, that I had, but, uh, but nope, I didn't do it. Um, I, don't, I don't regret it. I just wish that I had. Uh, second is leave yourself open to all opportunities. I mean, if you've been a career infantry man, uh, it's probably right to think that for for a 55-year-old uh, person, there's not a lot of uh, a big market out there for a 55-year-old bushwhacker. But understand all the things that you have learned and absorbed over over your career and, and that um, – probably more important than your major in college and, and, and even more important than your specific jobs while you're in military, in the military, you have to bring uh, a certain amount of discipline and, and a certain amount of uh, intellectual curiosity to every job. And uh, if you're burnt out on those things, then more, more reason to take some time off because no matter what you do, you, you need to bring that. Otherwise, you're kind of shorting yourself and shorting your employer. And it doesn't help uh, as throughout my entire life and career to have uh, a little bit of luck. So right. I had no idea that this job was opening, but the network, which is important, uh, ran through, uh, goes through the, the chief's office and they look at who's about to retire and who might be a good fit. And so... Um, uh, I got a call from the Air Force Aid Society to say, uh, are you interested in this at all? And I, I was it was uh, it was like uh, it dropped out of the blue. So so you're a CEO of the Air Force Aid Society. You're also on the, a member of the Board of Governors of the Civil Air Patrol. And no, no, your... I'm not any not anymore. I okay. was. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not on the CAP board, uh, Board of Governors anymore. And to your point, though, I think uh, just uh, I saw an article about General Larry Spencer, who's the president of the Air Force Association, another uh -huh. African-American general officer. Um, right. But, you know, you retired three stars. Now you're CEO of the Air Force Aid Society. What is it like? What's the Air Force Aid Society do? And, and what do you enjoy about where you are now? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, in, in the broadest sense, we're a charity uh, with a very def defined clientele, which is active duty airmen retired airmen, widows and widowers, including uh, wounded warriors and, and their dependents. So um, we, we like to say that there are three things that we do. One, one is emergency assistance. So 
Sergeant Hopper is is driving home uh, to see his mother who is ill. Short notice trip. Uh, he's out on the road, and and his his thirteen year old Ford one fifty drops the tranny in the middle of the road. Yeah, uh, he never planned for that, and uh, so he needs some help, and he needs it now. And so that's that's one of the things that we do is get out there with with either a grant or no interest loan so that he can get back on the road to, to see his, his uh, parent that's, that's ill. Um, the, the second thing is education, uh, helping the dependents, uh, children and spouses of, uh, of that same group that I just described, active duty airmen, guardsmen, reservists, retirees, widows and widowers, uh, go to college. So every year we devote uh, $6 million plus to need-based education grants. Wow. And then, uh, and uh, part of that is uh, merit scholarships as well. So the grants uh, vary anywhere from usually $500 to $4,000, depending on the, the level of need. And the scholarships are all $5,000 scholarships. So we have had several students that have qualified for the highest education grant, $4,000. They won one of the merit scholarships for $5,000. And then for those, some of those costs that are, can't be covered by grants and they need a little more money, we give the family a $1,000 no interest loan. So they'll, they'll start their academic year with $10,000 from the Air Force Aid Society. Wow. Uh, and then the last thing are what we call community enhancement programs, most of them generated by the tremendous operational tempo that's, that's uh, the byproduct of our involvement uh, in uh, South, uh, Southwest Asia. Uh, for the last uh, 20, 25 years. Right. Uh, so car care programs, nothing breaks until the member is deployed. Right. So uh, let's, let's get a look at your car. Let's get the oil changed and, and make sure that it's going to last through the deployment. Um, child care. Uh, one of the most difficult things is when, uh, is when the military member comes back from a deployment. Uh, so give, uh, give the member and the spouse a little bit break. Uh, we'll ante up for some childcare, and uh, and they can enjoy a date night or two to to reacquaint themselves with each other. Uh, and then there's some special circumstances. Um, for example, uh, right now we're involved in trying to support the Air National Guard uh, in uh, both Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And um, the way the rules are, are written, uh, those airmen would not be eligible for our support under normal circumstances but mm. this is this is the unusual so we have we have done several exceptions to policy and i give great credit to my coo colonel retired lindy Gintowinch, who is who has just been she she has taken this uh just uh, and just really run with it and and the simplest of things uh, for example in the virgin islands uh, many of the airmen and their families are on their military compounds, hmm. uh, which is bad enough, meaning they can't live in their homes. Uh, but here's the other thing. Of course, the compound is not made necessarily as a shelter to take people in. Right. So, so we are buying washing machines for them. Because if you're in the VI and the AC is not working and right. you can't wash your clothes, then sometimes it may be uncomfortable to be close for a long period of time. I can imagine. So the, the simplest of, of things are, are just so important to these folks that, that we're trying to do our part to, uh, to help them out. So in an average year, we'll, we'll obligate somewhere between 15 and $20 million 
and then we maintain a cash reserve that's that's uh, built up by fundraising and uh, hopefully good investment policies that right now is about two hundred million dollars. So uh, to try and uh, try and keep enough to keep going from year to year. Wow. The other side of that is um, usually through no fault of my own. It's pretty easy to shave in the morning and say, you know what? I bet we have airmen from A to Z and, and here to there today. Yeah. And uh, and you can you can feel pretty good about that. So that it's, is, I, it ahead. must be very gratifying. I, it is. I'm, I'm very lucky uh, to be able to continue to serve the, the men and women that have have propped me up, have been my friends and colleagues and wingmen and uh, shields and everything else. Uh, over the last uh, 45 years now. That's so, a very nice. I um, And that, so that's what you've been doing since you got out pretty much. It is, yeah. Wow. Some side forays, uh, probably the most notable was, was serving on what was called the Military Leadership Diversity Commission. So with that, um, I, uh-huh. I wanted to ask you two questions around that or a couple questions around that. How, one of them, you said early, I read a article that you had where you said that diversity makes the military services stronger um, as much as diversity as strengths to the nation. And, and then also no jobs that is of the air force are closed to African-Americans. I wonder, um, I have friends who I've seen them give presentations on how few pilots there are, particularly fighter pilots. Um, I read yes. an article with, um, general Spencer talking about the low promotion rates among people of color. Mm-hmm. What do you think from what you did on the diversity commission? Um, what do you think is, are a couple of keys to turning the tide on that score. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll give you a couple of keys, but, but I don't believe we've turned the tide. So it's, it remains a work in progress. I, I, I'll quote a, a dear friend and, and leader, General Les Lyles, who said, you know, I hate to be around 10 years from now when somebody says, you know what, we ought to have a commission to figure out why we don't have more minorities in some of these important positions, because, right. In our lives, we've seen this cycle through a couple of times. But here, the, the most important parts are, are this, I think. First of all, uh, although it was not a going in position, uh, we, we quickly learned that trying to understand uh, uh, allowing uh, women in the door of all of our career fields uh, was, uh, was going to be a product of this. Uh, and we were able to do that, uh, uh, to make that recommendation. And uh, when you talk about leadership, General Lyles, when he started, said, you know what, guys and girls, at the end of this, we're going to have 100 percent report. So just keep that in your mind. That is 100 percent. Everybody agrees. Minority opinions. When we get to the end of the road. And uh, I think one of the most difficult things was getting through this, the thought process and and being able to to lay out the rationale to have women in all uh, career fields because of of this misplaced sort of thing that, oh, it's going to dilute the standards and nobody wants a woman in the foxhole and all that sort of thing. And uh, conceptually, probably stereotypically, uh, easier for airmen probably to embrace that uh, than it is for for uh, the Army and the Marine Corps, particularly in the in the infantry. Right. And I, I think, uh, for example, that was brought through by, by a couple of our representatives on their uh, in describing, reminding us all the responsibility of the infantry, the final responsibility is to close with the enemy and uh, and to render them ineffective, right. or to use a, a euphemism. 
Hmm. Uh, but I give great credit to those to those officers that were there representing services that had infantry components to to uh, understanding and finding a way to express to to the world and to their colleagues that that this is not a gender thing. It is it is a is a case of being able to to demonstrate that you have the strength and the skill to be able to close with the enemy and render them ineffective. Right. And and they were able to do that so the commission could stay true to its course. Some other things that we found were were on the one hand disturbing, on the other hand a fact of life. For example, we found the promotion system. We said the promotion system was absolutely fair, and um, we ended up with a lot of folks shaking their head at that, saying. How can you say that when you look at the statistics of who gets promoted and who doesn't get promoted? And so I'm clear you're saying your conclusion as a, a commission was yes. that the promotion system was fair. Yes. Okay. And so here's the rest of the story there. Uh, it, it, it is the promotion system is a rigid, rigidly controlled system. Uh, the, who charges the promotion board, the composition of the promotion board uh, is, is uh, there is diversity on that board. The charge given by the secretary to that board is is very clear, very specific. Uh, and then the actual mechanics of the board are uh, could easily be conducted in a, in a secure classified facility because it is so structured and is uh, so protected from uh, uh, not just outside influences, but internal uh, spurious comments. That uh, that are not useful in the promotion process. Uh, so uh, so the board mechanics getting to the rank order. Uh, I, I, there's there are no gaps in that. Where the gap is is what the board has to make a judgment on. Right. So what goes into those OERs, uh, EPRs uh, is uh, is what the board sees. They can't manufacture anything after that. In fact. Uh, the comment, the ability to comment on an individual is severely restricted. So uh, you can't even on the plus side say somebody go in and tell them how these guys and girls really are. Right. It, it does not work that way. So it, and that's that's where understanding what the organization values, having the mentors that can help you as as you look at your efficiency reports, at you look at what you're doing to say, you know, have I given myself the best opportunity here? And is that reflected in the words that are used to describe everyone else in these efficiency reports? How could we make a jump there? Um, so what what you're describing is, I think, universal for the person that thinks, oh, this is just for the military. You're saying what's, I think, universal. It's not like maybe the system, maybe the world is quote unquote fair, or at least the rules may be the same for everyone. Not exactly, but but relatively fair. Um, but what happens is everything that's input, where you came from, what you didn't know about being a DG in a course, you know, what kind of training you had, you, you know, if you're in the military family or not, all those things feed into what ends up on your report, your OER. Um, and so once it's there, though, it's there and you can't change it. But how yeah, do we fix that, the inputs effectively? <clears throat> yeah, there, that, that, is, that is difficult. Uh, it, it is a long process uh, because it says that all of all of our senior seniors uh, must be uh, devoted to uh, fairness, uh, to uh, to understanding what their what their folks do, 
and uh, to being able to put it down uh, on paper so that it translates well. Yeah. So all of all of those things about being a good writer, uh, it's not for you. It's so that you can write and describe either an ongoing situation or write and describe how well or perhaps how poorly uh, your people are doing. Yeah. So it's it's just it really is important that reporting officials understand uh, how to do that. Now, some of them understand all too well that the thing left unsaid, the damning with faint praise. Right. The, or the promise to you that don't worry about this year, I'm going to take care of you next year. Uh, and that's why your OPR doesn't give you credit for this and this. We're going to catch that up next year. Uh, that, that is, that is a, that is false hope. Uh, things go south. Uh, you, you don't have much recourse once that has, has sort of gone forward. So aside from good mentorship for young officers, or maybe even those mid career that still want to, uh, give themselves the best chance when their when their evaluations get into that promotion room. What kind of things, like what's one or two things they should really do um, to give themselves a better chance? Right. Uh, again, I think it goes back to first starting off with being technically qualified uh, in whatever your specialty is, and obviously not just aviation, but whatever it is. Be be as near as you can be to the best. Uh, to the person that people that others go to for for answers and that that particular expertise is again reflected in your efficiency report recognize what it takes to get yourself prepared for the next level so it, it seems i think uh that that resident attendance at at the at the staff colleges and the war colleges of the world is still important uh so you need to be the person that goes uh goes to do that there are some subtle things there that that um, that are, are less important, but but can play a part. Uh, I was told when I was you got to put down a couple of choices of where you wanted to go for the staff college. And so I was putting down all of these very cool international opportunities right. until and I'm embarrassed. I can't say he told me, he said, look, uh, you need to do a couple of things here. One is one is that. In one of these opportunities, staff college or war college, you need to go to the Air Force school right? Uh, so that you make sure that you're plugged in on the Air Force side of this thing. Now, I, I know for a lot of people at work, they always had, they went both opportunities, they were international, but that did work for me. I went to the Air Command and Staff College. And then for my war college opportunity, I went to ICAP. Hmm. And, and, uh, and so that experience, it, it was perfect for me. I mean, I, I felt, uh, that, uh, I didn't make the decision, but I felt, uh, I felt that the decision enhanced my, my ability to contribute to the air force. So, but, but you need to understand, uh, those sorts of things that there probably is not, there are not many things that, uh, that, uh, that can be substituted for the, for the in residence. Uh, making that selection process because all of those things represent the fact that you were measured against your peers and chosen to get that particular opportunity. Right. So that that's important. If it doesn't happen for you, and sometimes it just doesn't, uh, it, it's not time to despair. Uh, but you need to redouble your efforts to get that opportunity uh, the next time around. So if you miss the staff college, uh, you need to do the work. Uh, and, and make sure your boss knows that you want to go to the war college. So is it okay uh, that like you're saying it's okay to advocate for yourself to your, your superiors? 
absolutely. If if you're not getting face to face debrief on your on your performance, then you and your superior have both uh, done a bad thing. So uh, the person that's writing that report, they they darn well better be talking to you, uh, because for one thing, it makes it really difficult to to just uh, shuffle off to Buffalo uh, when you have to make eye contact. Right. And it's also the time when you can very clearly get on the table what you think gives you the best opportunity to contribute to the Air Force in the future. How do people find good mentors? Oh, man, I, I do not have a good answer for that because it, it is. Do people just like you and, and look out for you naturally? There's no liking. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know that Ken Tallman liked me. Okay. <laughs> but but it, it, here's why I say that. I, I say that there's no liking. Certainly there's some liking. It, but it, the other part is that that as a mentor you, you are mentoring someone to better prepare them. For for their next step and their service to the Air Force and their service to America, liking can be a part of that, but right. it is not a prerequisite for that. The liking part. Uh, if you see an airman, uh, in fact, particularly, and there better be some that don't look like you, right. that have the potential for the next steps to better serve our Air Force and better serve our country, then then uh, it's incumbent upon you. Well, what about sure. the other side? Like the, right. you're you're right. What about me? I need the mentorship. How yeah. do I how do I get in the way of somebody who either <laughs> has that desire or right. I can influence them to have it? Yeah, I think you just you have to put yourself forward. Yeah, uh, because it, it is a two way street. Um, uh, a mentor is not, a person who is mentoring is not going to mentor a knucklehead. Right. Uh, so, so if you if you present as a knucklehead uh, and think that a mentor is going to turn your life around and get you headed in the right direction, uh, there may be some cases like that, but it is probably false hope. Right. If you present as a professional that's looking to increase your ability to contribute in the future, then then the professional mentoring, I think, goes without question, and it's probably followed by personal mentoring as well. Yeah. And on that two-way street, uh, um, it, I, it, my view is the good mentor will let you know that, particularly when it comes to advice uh, about do this or do that or whatever, uh, the mentor is not offended if if you decide to if they recommend X and you decide to do Y. Right. Uh, because in a, in a professional relationship, the demands on you and on your family and on your life, your lifestyle. And what you see in your future, uh, Y may be the right thing. X might be the best thing for the Air Force, uh, but you can't do X and then maintain faith with those that support you. Uh, so you have to do Y. So the good mentor is not going to be offended by that. Uh, they simply know that your circumstances take you another way. And uh, that's not a reason to end the mentoring relationship. That's a reason to, to sort of perhaps intensify it and say, okay. Uh, I understand exactly. This this is what you have got to do. So, what's the next step now after that? Right. Who have been some important mentors to you? Uh, 
I think uh, on the on the peer side, um, uh, one of my colleagues at uh, McGuire, a guy named Joe Ori, who was a fellow maintenance squadron commander uh, with me, we were both pilots in the same squadron, and then we both got maintenance squadrons. Uh, was, uh, I mean, in the simplest of terms, <laughs> it's humorous now, but but he said, okay, you just got to make the squadron. So let me tell you, do not take command on a Friday. You know why that was, TQ? Why is that? Okay, because he said, I took command on a Friday. Friday night, the guys and girls at a party in my dormitory set it on fire. <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even know my first sergeant's number to call to get him to come help me out. So, so wait till take, Monday. Yeah, take command on Monday or, or during the week. <laughs> Let someone else clean up that mess. <laughs> the most practical of things. When I mentioned the McGuire and retaking the ORI, uh, Jerry Wright was was the the acting uh, wing commander. He wasn't acting. Moved from Air Base Wing uh, Commander to the to the wing commander, flying wing commander, and uh, he was the guy that told me that I got promoted below the zone to colonel. Hmm inadvertently not inadvertently absolutely on purpose and it's something that i i adopted after having it happen to me uh he brought me and another guy in his office we both got promoted early to colonel and he said guess what guys look in the mirror you're the same ugly stump that you were yesterday uh people of the opposite sex are are not instantly attracted to you Uh, they don't want to be your friend and go out and they don't appreciate you sitting closer than you did yesterday right. or, or making moon eyes. And, uh, and uh, what you say has now become uh, more important. Mm. Likewise, when I got promoted to brigadier uh, uh, in, in the, in that process, uh, I was lucky that, that the uh, matchcom commander was uh, Ron Fogelman who mm. to this day remains uh, to me the, the the best chief, certainly in my lifetime, and I, I think the best chief that the Air Force has had. And uh, his his attention to to detail and to his people is uh, is unmatched. And yeah. I tried to I would try to emulate that, but not even come close. But but gave gave advice about. Uh, not confined just to me, but to others as well about the the right thing to do. Uh, there will be hard things to do that we are the keepers of the military justice system, which, which perhaps is, should be on our minds after this incident in Texas, that right. that system is hard, but it needs to be done fast and fairly. And, uh, and our responsibility to, to, to keep that, that, you could never give too much praise to the people that worked for you hmm. uh, because of what they sacrificed to help you do the mission of the Air Force. Um, and sort of throughout, he, he uh, I just uh, paid attention to, uh, to what he said. And um, he was uh, the person that told me and said, hey, you haven't heard yet. You're going to go out and be commandant of the Air Force Academy. Wow. And uh, so I'll, I will never forget that day on the flight line at, uh, cause I was a wing commander. So you always had to go out and meet the uh, AMC commander, a match right. commander when he, uh, when he came in. And, uh, and so he told me, so he was my first chief of staff. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's Ronald uh, R. Fogelman. Ronald R. Absolutely. A terrific, terrific officer. Uh, so he, he is there on the peer side, uh, general Al flowers, Okay. Uh, retired now, two-star, the longest-serving airman uh, in our Air Force, uh, 
but but absolutely uh, a rock. Um, another uh, retired colonel now, uh, Bruce Brown, who was our uh, JAG uh, at when I was at AETC, and uh, uh, I knew how I knew that I should ask the JAG some questions, and uh, but but sometimes I didn't know exactly how to frame it, right. And other times I knew I had to ask the Jag the question and, and Colonel Brown was very nice about saying, now General Hopper, I, I know you've called me to ask this question, but you know what the answer is, don't you? And uh, I said, yeah, Bruce, I guess I was perhaps looking for some other answer, but you're right. I know what the answer is, Right. but unquestioned uh, integrity and uh, willingness to, to put himself forward. Um, and, uh, Let's see. Let me just think who else. Uh, I'd have to say my spouse mm, uh, as well. That's uh, sometimes she gives it with the uh, spouse's traditional tough love, right? But uh, but always on the spot and uh, and and looking out for for others as well as family and friends. So uh, she gets uh, she gets she gets included in the old philosophy of one go to jail, all go to jail. <laughs> I heard that. And I can, I can agree to that. You've had some amazing mentors and, um, and a, an amazing career. I wonder if, uh, before we go, you could just tell me, you already gave us one, uh, book you, you'd give as a gift, uh, that once an Eagle, what are a couple of others if you have them? Uh, yeah, the other, the two others, one, one is also uh, along the lines of once an Eagle in historical fiction. Uh, that talks about trying to make some tough choices. It, actually, it, two books. Uh, it, the set, I think, is called The Winds of War. The second book is War and Remembrance. And uh, and so that, that particular set. But the other book that, that actually is one that you have to read a couple of times, I think, perhaps more than that, is W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, The Soul of Black Folks. Mm. And uh, it's amazing to me um, how prescient his 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 understanding his his uh, his grasp uh, even at that particular time about about some of the challenges facing us hyphenated Americans as right. as we go forward it uh, it perhaps even speaks to to some of the things that that we see and and try to understand about about where the country is. Uh, where the country is right now. Yeah. He, he, he didn't say it, but I, I just read a piece I, I thought was fascinating that, that uh, even as the political parties struggle, the times that, that, uh, that we have seen political parties struggle the most, starting with the Whigs and the Tories, hmm. uh, historically seems to be around race. Yeah. Uh, Democrats and Republicans in the civil war. And then, uh, Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction, and sixty, and the the migration of Southern Democrats to the Republican Party, and and now here we are again with this, uh, with things looking like the old is, like the new is the new is the old. Yeah, the guy uh, Ravi Zachariah says, "New news is old news happening to new people." Yeah, that's yeah, it's a great uh, great description. Unfortunate, but a great description. What um, what do you do on the other hand for fun? Oh, well, um, I like to play golf. 
I, I don't play very well, but it does offer a chance to learn some new words or new ways to put words together. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, it, my, my hobby is sort of photography. I, I've, uh, I've done that really off and on since, frankly, since, uh, since, uh, Vietnam, actually before, even when I was a little kid, uh, in Germany, I remember my dad bought me my first camera and I can't remember the name of it and certainly don't have it, but I've always been intrigued by that. My favorite high school teacher who just uh, passed away this year, uh, was sort of a photography buff uh, as well. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of my hobby. And, uh, other than that, it's, um, trying to negotiate the, the relentless turns of the pages of the calendar yeah, sure. Uh, to get on the other side. Sure. Um, do you, do you, uh, post any of your pictures online? Like you have an Instagram account or something like that? I do, but I don't post, uh, very much. Okay. I, I, I'm not so good at that. I have a Flickr account and okay. I think I need to take the, le- I think my Flickr account is labeled private or something like that. So I need to unleash kind of unleash that thing on the world. Yeah, I'm sure people like to see some of your good work. Uh, I don't know about that, but but uh, but I'll I'll have to go through and do that if I can figure out how to how to do it. Where can uh, people find you online uh, if they wanted to just say thanks for your service? If you want to do like social media, maybe if you have a LinkedIn account or if people want to, you know, I I do I do have a LinkedIn account, and uh, uh, so that's that's probably as a, a good way as well. Okay. So, General Hopper, it's been an amazing conversation with you. Um, I could go on for another hour just learning from you and, and hearing the history that you've lived and, and navigated with a lot of success. Um, I really appreciate you being on the call. And my guest today has been General Hopper. General Hopper, thanks for being on the call today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. As I said, I'm, I'm flattered and glad to have the opportunity. So I, I like your program and I like what you're doing. So keep going, man. 